I know you're interested to know what God's word says about being brave in the new world. So let's take our Bibles together and let's turn once again to the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. We're looking at some foundational topics in our world, foundational topics in the Christian life. We have dealt already in our series with the topic of gender. Last week, we looked at the topic of marriage. Today, I want to move to the subject of sexuality. Sexuality. I've been reading the book of Jeremiah for my devotionals the last few weeks, and so let me just start with that. I stumbled across a passage this last week that was relevant for our topic today. So there's a place, you can read this on the screen, there's a place in Jeremiah where the prophet says, it shall be well with you and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. And you might say, that's, that's curious, Pastor Tony. You might say, really, Pastor Tony, I thought the Bible says that we should not stubbornly follow our own heart. Doesn't the Bible say, instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? Proverbs 3, well, actually, in, in looking at that scripture on the screen, I did a little scriptural sleight of hand here. Shame on me for that. I took this verse out of context, and when you look at the broader context, it makes sense. It's just a reminder here to always interpret Scripture in context, right? So let me, let me give you the broader context of what Jeremiah is saying here and see if this makes more sense and lines up with what you know of what the Bible says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. You got it? Do you now? So, so here's the context too. Jeremiah was dealing with some prophets in his day that were speaking untrue words about the Lord and circulating them. Actually, these prophets were going around to the rebellious Israelites and saying, everything's good between you and the Lord. Everything's okay. Everything's copacetic between you and the Lord. You got nothing to worry about. There's no judgment coming. And Jeremiah's message to the people of Israel was exactly the opposite. He said, no, you need to be worried. No, you are in trouble. No, there is judgment coming. Your wicked heart is leading you astray, and so you need to repent. And what they did for Jeremiah for preaching this unpopular message is they threw him into prison repeatedly in the book of Jeremiah because that was an unpopular message. People didn't want to hear that. Now, why would I start a message on sexuality with a quotation from Jeremiah? Why would I reference that? prophet in that passage specifically, Jeremiah 23, 16, and 17. Here's why. It's because there are people going around in our world saying right now, it's okay. It's okay to just do whatever you want in terms of your body, sexually. You got to be true to yourself. Y'all hear that ever? You got to be true to yourself. You do you. You just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Now, okay, let's just think this through a little bit. This is a smart group of people here at Harvest Decatur. I love being your pastor. So proud of this church. 
Let's just think about this for a second. Why is that bad advice? Just, you know, you do you. Just follow your heart. Just do whatever comes naturally. Why is that bad advice, especially as it relates to young people? You guys know the answer to that. Let me help you with it. Here's why that's bad advice. Here's why you should not tell people to do that. Everybody listening? Do I have your attention? Hitler just followed his heart. Hitler was true to himself. Hitler hated Jews in his heart. He hated, he hated gypsies. He hated the mentally handicapped. So he had them destroyed, killed. He had the power to do that. He hated them in their heart. He just followed his heart. We tell people they should follow their heart. Why not Hitler? Right? Also, what about the medieval warrior who loves violence? Think about this person for a second. And he lusts after women who are not married to him, who are married to other men. So his, his bloodlust is so pronounced that he actually kills other people who don't look like him. This is who he is. He's got to be true to himself. He's got to follow his heart. And his heart tells him to go kill people and take their wives and put them into his harem of wives. Is that wrong? Of course it is. And we would never tell somebody like that in the Middle Ages, just follow your heart. And, and I know what some of you are saying right now. I can, I can feel it. I can feel you saying this. You're telling me right now, Pastor Tony, we're, we're not Hitler. Come on. We're not medieval warriors here at Harvest Decatur. We're not, we're not like that. Aren't we, though? Isn't there a part of you that is inflamed with lust sometimes? Isn't there a part of you that hates other people just because they don't look like you or because they come from a different country? Isn't there a part of you that thinks that violence is the solution for everything? And I know, I know we suppress that. We suppress that, especially you as Christians. You know, we're putting that to death as an aspect of our flesh. But what if I told you, you know what, you should stop doing that. You need to be true to yourself. You need to follow your heart. You need to follow what that thing inside of you that tells you to do whatever it is, and it'll be okay. If I, if I started telling you that, if I started preaching that, some of you might say, well, you know, Pastor Tony, I think we're going to find another church because that, that is not good advice. That's not what the Bible teaches. And, and yet here's my point. That's the exact logic that people are using in our day as it relates to their sexual identity, to how they practice this gift of sex that God has given us. So we're going to talk about this today, Harvest Decatur. Let's talk about sex. Lock the doors back there, okay? We're all going to talk about it together. And, and I'll be honest, this is, this is not my favorite topic to talk about. I'd rather talk with you about the, the nine major categories of systematic theology. That's more my wheelhouse. But you know what? We live in a world where if, we don't, if we're not talking about it, if we're not dealing with this, if we're not looking at the scriptures, then the only voice that's in our world, the only voice that people hear is the voice of the world. I'm not okay with that. And so I want to do something for you that my pastor did for me when I was a young man, and he just told me the truth about sex as God intended it, and he gave me a vision for something better than what the world was telling me, okay? 
So let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sexuality. Five answers to this question. This is in your notes. You can write these down as we go. How does the Bible, what does the Bible teach about sex and sexuality? What does the Bible teach about sex and sexuality? Here's the first thing. Write this down as number one. Sexual intimacy is a divine gift. It's a gift from God. And let me be clear. When I say sexual intimacy, I'm talking about this act of sex that is commissioned by God for male and female. We're talking about the human act of sex, not not the animals. We're talking about men and women made in the image of God. God has given us certain directives as men and women of God. And what he tells us to do, what he's commissioned us to do as men and women is to engage in sex in a monogamous heterosexual marital relationship. That's how God created sex and that's how he wants us to use it. He wants us to use it in the way that he gave it to us as a gift. Sex was not created in Hollywood. Sex was not created in America or in England or in France. Sex was not created by the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Babylonians or even the Israelites for that matter. Sex did not originate with the Kama Sutra. Sex did not originate with Solomon either when he wrote the Song of Solomon 3,000 years ago. Sex is much older than that. It was created by God at the very beginning of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It was his gift to us as humanity. And like all gifts that God gives, it was given for us to enjoy with stipulations. There are rules for it. It has to be used in the way that God created it to be used. To pervert it is to destroy the goodness of that gift. What happens with sex, and I... I think I need to say this. It's, it's, just, it's, such this it, it's such a powerful thing in our lives that it can be controlling. And so if you don't get this right, if you don't understand it rightly, it can just take over. And in fact, here's what happens with sex. It's deified. I mean, it was deified by the Roman Empire. It was deified by ancient peoples even before that. It, it becomes this, this idol in people's hearts. And I think that's the case in our country today. We idolize sex. We're obsessed with it. There's an article online that you can read right now. I would encourage you to read it. It's called How Sex Became King by Alex Duke. It's at the Gospel Coalition website. And here's what Alex Duke says. He says, sexual sin rears its head as a consistent expression of human, humanity's tendency to answer the serpents, did God really say with, no, I suppose he didn't. The doubting of God's goodness and believing Satan's lie has led to the demeaning of sex in our world. It's led to things in our world like, like cheap abortions and easy pornography. It has led to non-commitment sexual liaisons. It has led to tender hookups and the exploitation of young girls and human trafficking and the sex trade. It has led to lazy men who refuse to get married, and it has led to other men and women who are more than eager to marry someone of the same sex. It has led to sexual confusion and to sexual perversion and to sexual idolization. What's the answer to this? You know, what's a church to do in a situation like this? How are we as a church going to respond to this? Well, here's what the church has done a lot of times, and I'm just 
here to tell you I'm not okay with this. The church has been silent on this matter. Too much. Too much. Or here's another thing that we've done. We've demonized sex. You know, I'm not for idolizing sex. I'm not for demonizing it either. That is not a solution. And the reason I'm not okay with that is because the world is preaching all this stuff about sex and selling everything to our to our kids even, and we've got a better way. Why are we talking about it? Why don't we say to our children, there's a better way. God has created it to be better than what the world is telling you. And let's just be frank here. Why did God create sex? Why did he do it? Well, at least in part, we have a baby shower coming up, so God created it so that we would make babies, and that's good. I'll prove it to you. Genesis 1. The Bible says this in verse 26. I've read this before. I think I've read it twice already in our series, and it's it's so good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. God just made all of these animals, all these beasts, and then he created us to be non-beastly. You got it? We are not beasts. God created us in his image after His likeness, it says. And God says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We covered that already, right? Both made in God's image. Imago Dei, here it is. And what's the first thing that God tells man and woman to do? What's the, he just created them. What's the first thing he tells them to do in verse 28? I could could go on and on about things he didn't tell them to do first. But this is what he told them first. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing, thing that moves on the earth. What's the first thing God told us to do? Be fruitful and multiply. As a married couple, that's the first command God gave humanity. How do you multiply? You reproduce. How do you reproduce? You have sex. You procreate. Some of you might know this already, but some of the early church fathers, as they interpreted Genesis 1 through 3, they looked at Genesis 3 and they saw this this sin, this original sin, and they actually believed that the original sin committed in Genesis 3 was sex. That somehow, you know, the man and the woman discovered each other and they had sex and that was the original sin. That's what brought all these consequences into the world. Augustine believed that. And I, I love Augustine. You guys know I do. I quote him. But I, that interpretation is not right. That is not right. I have so many problems with that. One of the biggest problems I have with that, Genesis 3, is that it allegorizes this, this situation where the, the tree of the life of, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is taken from. I, I don't like that, but neither do I like the fact that they ignore Genesis 1 with that interpretation. Procreation was a pre-fall command by God, even before the fall of man in Genesis 3. Everybody with me? I know this is a little technical, theological, but this is so important here. Because I want you to understand that sex is not dirty, sex is not the original sin, it's not some horrible thing that God gave us that we just got to endure so we procreate. It's a good gift that God has given us. It's not just Genesis 1 either. Turn over with me to Genesis 2. Look at verse 24 with me. This foundational verse as it relates to marriage, sexuality, gender even. 
Therefore, God says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we looked at that last week, and we talked about in marriage how, you know, even in the New Testament, you look in the New Testament, and when Jesus wants to talk about marriage, he comes to this verse. And when Paul wants to talk about marriage in Ephesians 5, he goes to Genesis 2, verse 24. And, you know, we talked about how in Genesis 2.24, there's this one flesh union that takes place and there's this emotional and psychological and spiritual unity that's created in marriage and that's good. And I'm all for that and I can talk about that. But I want you all to know it's, it's not just emotional, it's not just psychological, it's not just spiritual. At its most basic level, Genesis 2.24 is, is a sexual act. It's literal. It's physical. Two fleshes become one. You know, that's important theologically, too, because in Genesis 2, here's, here's God creating man and woman. He creates the man, and then he, he takes the man, he takes the rib out of the man, and he creates the woman. So he's got one flesh, and he creates two fleshes out of that one man. And now, in this thing called marriage, he takes those two fleshes, and he puts them back into one flesh. I mean, it's poetic and it's beautiful, but it's literal too. The, the sexual act is this thing that brings them together, and I'll prove it to you. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, talking about this in the New Testament. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, here he goes, quoting Genesis two twenty four again, the two will become one flesh. The idea, here's what Paul's saying, the idea that you would unite your body with someone who is not your wife, that is utterly distasteful to Paul. And as you read 1 Corinthians, it's, it's as if you hear Paul saying, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever do that? Why would you give yourself sexually to someone who wasn't in a covenant marriage commitment with you? So sexual intimacy, it's a, it's a creation of God. It's a divine thing that God has given us. And the reproductive system, it's, it's good, just like the skeletal system, just like the cardiovascular system, just like the respiratory system that God created. God created the reproductive system, and it's good. And secondly, write this down. So it's a divine gift. It's also, it's also a good gift. It's a good gift from the Lord. The Bible says in 1 Timothy six seventeen that God has given us all good things richly to enjoy. And sex is one of those good gifts and those who demonize sex or try to denounce it as carnal or worldly insult the giver of that good gift. So let's, just as an illustration, let's just do a thought experiment. Let's say that your spouse who loves you so much, she, he wanted to give you a, a gift for your birthday or for your anniversary. And so they researched it and, and found what you really wanted, a nice dinner out or you know, a, a fine bottle of perfume or something like that, or maybe wives for your husband, it was tickets to some sporting event, the St. Louis Blues, the, the Cardinals, the Cubs, whatever. And you, you work hard and you produce this gift, you've done research on it, and you present it to him or her, and they, they snub their nose at it. And they tell you, I don't want any of those carnal pleasures. Would, would that be offensive to you, would it now? Would you... 
Would that be just a little bit obnoxious to you that somebody would turn their nose at this good gift that they've given you? And yet that's how we act sometimes in sex, this gift that God has given us. We treat it as carnal or worldly or evil, this thing that God calls good. I heard recently about, you know, there's, there's a counselor that I know that he was counseling this married couple and this married couple had several kids, several kids. And, you know, they had never, as, as they were in the counseling environment, the counselor found out that they had never actually seen each other naked after several years of marriage. And the counselor was like, how, what, how did you conceive, how did you guys have all these kids? And they said, well, you know, we would just turn out the lights, kind of grope about in the darkness, do that unholy act, conceive and have kids. Is that a healthy view of sex? No. And you know where they learn that? They learn that in the church. They learn that in premarital counseling with their pastor. And I guess that's why I'm so adamant about this issue. The only way that we're going to proceed in this Christ, as Christians in this new world that we're living in is, is to live with bravery and to live with candor and to give the world a better option to give the world something better than what they're getting from, from Hollywood, the cheapening of sex in our current society. We, we've got to give them something, something better, something, something as God has created it, sex as God has created it. Now, do we need to denounce improper uses of sexuality? Absolutely. And by my count, there's at least 13 denunciations of sex outside of marriage in the New Testament. We'll get to that in just a moment, but here's, here's my point with this. You don't counter sin. Everybody listening? You guys have been listening very attentively for this message. You don't counter sin with asceticism. You don't counter sin with Gnosticism, like somehow the flesh is inherently evil. That doesn't work. Instead, you go back to the book, you go back to the truth, the way that God has given us this gift of sex, and you counter, you counter sin with holiness. And you counter sin with joy in the good gifts that God has given us. It's a gift from God. The Bible says this, Proverbs 30, verse 18. You can read this on the screen. It says, three things are too wonderful for me. For I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. The Bible says this in Proverbs 5, drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? There's some euphemism at work there. If you want me to explain it to you later, I will. Should that happen, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Perish the thought that you would do that with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's in the Bible, Pastor Tony? That's in the Bible. The Bible is not a prudish or puritanical document. The, the Bible deals with this. It's not silent on 
sex. And in fact, this is a command right here. Be intoxicated always with the wife of your youth. Yes, sir, Lord, I'm on that. Thank you. That's a, good, that's a command. Do that. Which leads me to our third point. Write this down as number three. Sexual intimacy is intended for pleasure. Sexual intimacy is intended for pleasure. John Piper writes this in his book, the, the momentary, This Momentary Marriage. You can read this on the screen. <laughs> this is insightful. He says, God did not make this massive capacity for pleasure merely to make sure there would be a new generation, more babies. God could have arranged it so that we get no pleasure in sex but get nauseated if we don't have sex twice a week. God could have done it that way, but he didn't. And then Piper says this, there is more to this pleasure than just procreation. It's more than just procreation. In England, to brides on their wedding night, they would tell the brides, just, just lie back and think of England. Just, just endure it for the empire. Make, make babies for us, for the empire, so that Britannia can rule the world. You know, y'all remember that song? Hail Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Y'all ever heard that song before? Do it for the empire. Make babies for the empire. Winston Churchill used to sing that song, Rule Britannia, and he, tears would well up in his eyes. What, what, what's the problem with that, that whole view, this idea that just lie back and think of England or lie back and think of America? If God only meant sex for procreation, not pleasure, here's my counter to that argument. Why is the book of Song of Solomon in the Bible? if God created it that way. Some people, you know, speaking of the Song of Solomon, this, this erotic book of poetry, some people look at that book and they say, well, you know, it, Pastor Tony, it's, it's allegorical. It's allegorical. It's, you know, it's, it's Christ's love for the church. That's what's being, it's, it's not, you know, erotic poetry or anything like that. When I hear that or when I hear people say that, I, I really want to say, have you ever read the book? I mean, have you? I read that book for the first time when I was a teenager. I've heard that Jews wouldn't allow their kids to read Song of Solomon until they're like 13, you know. And I read it as a teenager, and I remember thinking back then, I had heard that interpretation that's some kind of allegory of Christ's love for the church, and I knew even as a teenager, that doesn't work. Song of Solomon says this, verse 7, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one. With all your delights, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Phew. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. I'm sorry, but that ain't about Christ in the church. And, you know, it, is there a sense in which Marriage and even sex typifies Christ's love for the church. Yes, I can see that. Ephesians 5 makes that clear. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But I don't think we do our marriages any favors or interpretation any favor by looking at the Song of Solomon and say, oh, you know, there's nothing sexual going on there. We're just allegorizing. That doesn't do us any good. I mean, I, I don't think that's, I, I don't even think that's proper in terms of interpretation. As a scholar, I'm like, you can't do that. And all of that that happens in the Song of Solomon, let me just be clear about that, all of that happens in the context of marriage. 
And I, I think that's important. So can I let you in on a little secret? Don't tell Hollywood this, but there's actually some research that has proven that married couples have more happy sex lives than non-married couples or unmarried people. Don't tell Hollywood that. They'll never make a movie about that. But the research has shown that that's true, and, and that makes sense to me because the world has, honestly, the world has so deconstructed sex and taken out of its safe and glorious realm of marriage and relationship and procreation that it's become, it's become just like a commodity. It's become a less enjoyable experience. And yet God created it for, for procreation and for pleasure. God has given it as a good gift to be enjoyed. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the Song of Solomon with a young couple and a honeymoon and a, uh, a young married couple. Can I just say, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be limited to your honeymoon. Did you know that, married folks? You can enjoy it, and you get better at it, and you learn more your spouse over time. I think that's part of the enjoyment, the greater enjoyment that's true for married couples than for those who are having sex outside of marriage. You guys remember that Johnny Cash song, Jackson? Remember that song? We got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. Y'all know that song? We've been dreaming about Jackson ever since the fire went out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I love Johnny Cash. I love that song, but I don't agree with that song. It doesn't, it, the fire doesn't have to go out. You can still enjoy the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth, even as you age and get older. I'm not going to look at you. Just, just say amen if you agree with that. Okay? All right, good, good. You guys are with me. Write this down as number four in your notes. Sexual intimacy, here's another reason I'm so adamant about this issue. I feel like I need to teach it. Sexual intimacy is responsible and it's exclusive in the context of marriage. Let me, let me unpack those two words, responsible and exclusive. Sexual intimacy is responsible in the context of marriage because the Bible says it's better for a person to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. It's a responsible thing in marriage because the Bible says it's better to have sex regularly as a couple than to give Satan a foothold and tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, you might say, is there, is there a Bible verse on that, Pastor Tony? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then this is Paul's advice to us, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is not just a good gift from the Lord. It's not just a responsible thing in marriage. Here, I want y'all to, I want y'all to hear me on this. It is a weapon against Satan. Take up that weapon and protect your marriage. Y'all with me? I, I know we don't think of it that way. But it is. You have, you have the unique opportunity, husbands, wives, to take care of your spouse in a way that nobody else can. You should cherish that and take that seriously and do not let Satan get a foothold in your marriage. Here's how John Piper says it. 
He says, a married couple gives a severe blow to the head of that ancient serpent when they aim to give as much sexual satisfaction to each other as possible. Is it not a mark of amazing grace that on top of all the pleasure that the sexual side of marriage brings, it also proves to be a fearsome weapon against our ancient foe? Now, can, weapon, can, can sex be a weapon against your spouse? Yes, it can. Yeah, it can. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't deprive one another, except by agreement for a limited time, but then come together. Sexual intimacy is, is a responsible thing in the context of marriage. It needs, to be, it needs to be an act of mutual service to one another. And it needs to be regular and frequent in a marriage relationship. Some of you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, what do you mean by regular? What do you mean by frequent? How frequent is frequent? There's no way for me to answer that question without getting myself into a lot of trouble. But I'll risk that. Once a month is too infrequent. It's too infrequent. And you risk giving the devil a foothold. I would even say that once every other week, typically, typically, I'm talking about typical and typical marriage relationships. Every other week, especially for young couples, is too infrequent. And you risk giving Satan a foothold in your marriage. Don't do that. Brandish your weapon against the enemy. Don't take my advice on it. Take Martin Luther's. Here's what Martin Luther said. Take this to heart, husbands and wives. Martin Luther said twice a week and 104 times a year should give neither husband nor wife cause to fear. (laughs) I know that's not always possible, and I want you to hear my heart in this as your pastor. Husbands, you cannot demand this of your spouse. You cannot. But I would commend this to you in a, in a good, healthy, evangelical marriage to serve each other and take care of each other in this way for the good of your marriage. And this is important too. You know, I, I think personally that adultery, divorce would be much less prevalent, especially in the church, if couples took care of each other sexually. I believe pornography among married folk would be less prevalent if couples took care of each other in this way that doesn't absolve a person of their sin, that doesn't absolve a person of their addiction. If they're addiction to porn, they need to repent and turn away from that. But this is our weapon. This is our way to attack the enemy. And we, I think, in the church, we need more wholehearted obedience to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. And hopefully, too, this, you know, there's a time when sex... Let me say this. There's a time when sex is dutiful and there's a time when sex is beautiful. And there will be a time when you, as the dutiful, faithful, Bible-believing husband or wife, take care of your wife or your husband. And that's good. It It shouldn't be that way all the time. Sometimes it needs to be dutiful. Sometimes it's beautiful. Sexual intimacy is a responsible thing in marriage. 
It is. And let me deal with that other term. Not only is it the responsible thing, it's also an exclusive thing. It's exclusive. And and there's a way in which I could kind of harp on that and tell you, you know, how horrible it it would be for you to to commit adultery or to to ruin that good marriage relationship that you would have, that you have with your spouse. But I mean, I can talk about the negatives. I can talk about the positives too. Think about it positively. It's exclusive. This is your one. This is your one person that God has given you for this. That is so good. You might say, was there a place, Pastor Tony, where, you know, this idea about marriage and this need for sexual purity is talked about? Yeah, just about more than any other sin. I count 13 times in the New Testament that sexual sin or sex outside of marriage is condemned. Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. The Corinthians had a lot of issues with sex. And Paul kept bringing it up. You know, there's a marvel in that too. You know, some of these commands from Paul, Paul was a single man giving commands to the church about how to marry people, about how to take care of each other. You might say, well, he was the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, granted. But still, I I marvel at that. The single man saying, you married folk, take care of each other. 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians 5 speaks about Sex outside of marriage being a sin. Ephesians 5, verse 3. Colossians 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. Hebrews 13, 4. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. 2 Peter 2, 14. 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Y'all can look these up later. Jude 7. Even that little book of Jude. What, 18 verses? Even that deals with sexual sin. And Jesus, you know, Jesus talked about the, the evil that flows out of the human heart, Matthew 15. And one of the evils that Jesus lists is sexual immorality. Paul lists the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. And the first three things that he mentions in Galatians 5. Remember Galatians 5, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But also in that same chapter, there's the fruit of the flesh. There's this vice list. And Paul gives the first three vices that he mentions in that list. Galatians 5.19 are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. He knew it was a problem in the Roman Empire that he needed to deal with. Paul says this in Romans, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. We looked at this not that long ago. Y'all can read this on the screen. Paul says, for this is the will of God for your life. What's, what's God's will for my life, Pastor Tony? Should I, should I go to this school? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Here's God's will for your life. I know it authoritatively. Here it is. Your sanctification. Maybe that wasn't what you were looking for. That's God's will for your life. That you abstain, says Paul, from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The goal of the modern world, I'll just tell you, the goal of the modern world is to not control your bodies. You're just a beast. You're just an animal. Just, just let it out. Just be true to yourself. Just do whatever you, you have this urge to do. And that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says right here. Control yourself. Control your lust. You are not a beast. You, you have the ability to be sanctified and to be holy before God. C.S. Lewis said this. 
He said, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make, make up the total union. That There's an emotional connectedness. There's a physical connectedness. Yes, there's, there's this desire and covenant to procreate and to live life together. All of that is wrapped up in this sexual act. You know, at every single wedding I've ever officiated, I've quoted this passage from Genesis 2:24. Like I said last week, this is so foundational to everything that the Bible views about marriage. And let me recite it again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife, his wife, and they shall become one flesh, this, this sexual act. I think that verse is so foundational to the biblical understanding of marriage, but I've I've also quoted this passage at every wedding I've ever officiated. I know that C.S. Lewis would agree with this. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I, I try to say that at every wedding I do. You might say, well, why do you do that, Pastor Tony? I mean, are you doing that for the benefit of the people that you're marrying, you know, in, in, the, in the ceremony? And yeah, but can I be honest with you? They're not listening to me. They, I mean, I, I could be reciting the Declaration of Independence. They would not know. They're just gaga all over each other and, oh, the wedding, look at this dress. No, you look fabulous. This is wonderful. They're not listening to me. So why do I recite it? For their benefit? Sure, but... We've covered that in premarital. I say it for the benefit of all the people that are there in the wedding. All, all the witnesses, so to speak. There might be an opportunity to say, this is God's view of marriage and sexuality. Hebrews 13, 4, believe it. There might be any, and I pray for this at weddings, that God would use something like that in my preaching of the gospel in the wedding that, that someone might be convicted of their sin and come to Christ and be saved. Weddings are a great place to preach the gospel because that, that, that Christ church love is being enacted right there in front of us. What a great opportunity for the gospel. And that leads to my final point. Write this down. Sexual intimacy, it points to something deeper. It points to a deeper and more lasting reality. And I want you to hear me say that. There will come a day when sex will be no more. There will come a day when there will be no more procreation. There will come a day when there will be no more marriage, except for Christ's marriage to the church. That will last forever. One more quote from John Piper. I promise this is my last. He says, you do not have to be an ascetic, and you do not have to be afraid of the goodness of physical pleasure to say that sexual intimacy and sexual climax get their final meaning from what they point to. They point to ecstasies that are unattainable and inconceivable in this life. Just as the heavens are telling the glory of God's power and beauty, so sexual climax is telling the glory of immeasurable delights that we will have with Christ in the age to come. There will be no marriage in eternity. But what marriage meant will be there. And the pleasures of marriage 
10 to the millionth power. Everybody listening? I want you to hear that sentence. The pleasures of marriage, 10 to the millionth power will be there for eternity in the presence of the Lord. The pleasures we will experience there are such a kind that if God tried to explain them to us now, it'd be like us trying to explain sexual pleasure to a five-year-old. The child might nod his head in agreement, but then he would say, please pass the peanut butter. They don't get it. We don't get it. But we know enough about God and we know enough about eternity to know that it's going to be amazing and it's going to last forever. And here's the point. Here's my final point. Sexual pleasure in marriage is good. It's a good gift that God has given us, but it pales in comparison to the eternal glories that we're going to experience in the presence of the Lord forever. You need to know that. If you're single in this room, you need to know that. If you're married, you need to know that. We all need to know that. And we need to tell other people about that. Don't ever forget about it. If you are single in this room, and let's say that you, you're going to remain celibate for the rest of your life. I, I don't know. But let's say you do. You are not missing out on any great thing by not having sex. And you will not miss out on an eternity of ecstasy in the presence of the Lord. You will not. And by the way, if that is you, if you have maybe even made a commitment to be celibate for the rest of your life for whatever reason, can I just tell you, you're in good company. Jesus lived his life that way. That's good company. If you're married this morning, let me encourage you as your pastor to enjoy God's good gift of sex, to praise God for it. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy the husband of your youth, even if you're not young anymore. Celebrate the gift of sex. Enjoy the gift of sex. Don't idolize it. Don't demonize it. And don't give the devil a foothold in your marriage, and don't ever forget that there is something better than sex and marriage that awaits us in eternity. There won't be marriage in eternity. Enjoy it while you can. In eternity, we won't be married. There won't be sex. We're going to have something better. We're going to have all the joy that God experiences in eternity and none of the sorrows and none of the pains that are present in this world. Can I interest you in that? Does that sound good? The older you are in this room, the more you agree with that statement. Yeah. I can't wait. If you're a young person in this room, let's say younger than 25 and single, I want you to hear me say this. The devil is a liar. And you are not a beast. The world will tell you that. The world will tell you, be true to yourself. You do you. Just follow your heart. I'm here to tell you that is a lie, and that will take you to some dark places. Hold fast to the Lord. Trust in the Lord and the goodness of sex as he has intended it. And if you made mistakes along the way in this, you can be forgiven. <laughs> you know, and for some of you who are teenagers, young people, your parents have made mistakes in this area. 
you can be forgiven. Repent, turn from your sin, embrace Jesus Christ, and then wait for the good gift of sex. If in God's timing, he provides it to you, and you can experience that guilt-free, that goodness. It's worth waiting for. And if you're a, if you're a parent of a young person, some of you, you know, how many kids do we have over there right now? Maybe all your kids are over there. 50 kids. If you're a parent of a young person, you might be saying right now, Pastor Tony, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This world is so hard. My my kids don't have a chance. There's going to be so many problems. I have a solution for you. Are you ready for it? Here's my solution. Arranged marriages. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Teenagers, I'm kidding. The Bible says God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We are not going to be afraid in this world. We're going to be brave. We're going to be courageous. We're going to hold fast to the truths of Scripture as we raise up our army of Jesus followers. And we're not going to be angry either. We're going to love God. We're going to trust God. We're going to point our kids towards God. And then we're going to entrust them into the care of the God who loves them more than even we love them. Amen? And we are going to pray for them. I'll tell you what. I'll pray for your kids. You pray for mine. How's that? And let's do that right now as we close. God, thank you for your good gift of sex. There's so much more that I could say about this topic. But Lord, I trust that you have done your work today. And Lord, I want to just pray for the people in this room who maybe are struggling in this area, struggling with an addiction or struggling in a situation where they aren't able to enjoy this gift of sex and they want to or marriage. Lord, would you meet the deepest needs of their heart? Would you allow them even, Lord, to find other brothers and sisters in this room to help keep them accountable so that we can live lives of purity and holiness and honor? We want that for our church. And, Lord, we do pray for the kids in our Harvest Kids wing. I'm looking at it now over there, Lord. And So many young people, even in this room right now, who are growing up in a world that teaches them, just follow your heart, just be true to yourself. You're a beast. You just have to satisfy your urges. God, show them that lie for what it is. Show them that they are, they are men and women, young men, young women, young kids made in the image of God made for something better. Give them a vision, Lord, of what their life can look like and how they can follow you and serve you and love you and defy the lies of the enemy.